If you have a Bible and you want to open to Matthew chapter 12, that's where we're going to be today. Uh, we are uh, going through the Gospel of Matthew as we walk through. I want to let you know I'm super, super sick. So our customary hug as you leave church, might not want to do that today. Um, but uh, if you want to purel your hand, if you touch my hand today, that's totally socially acceptable to me. And if I start coughing, everyone, you just talk amongst yourselves, and uh, we'll just continue once that little fit is done. But, um, okay, uh, the, um, in the Old Testament, a long time ago, there's these stories from like thousands and thousands of years ago, and there's this guy named David, all right, and David is this Uh, kind of emerging king, and uh, he ends up being the greatest king. If you know the story very well, you might have heard of like David and Goliath. That's kind of like a saying uh, they use around the Civil War time, uh, because when there's a team that isn't going to win against a team that is going to win, Um, and then if the Beavers win, it's like, oh, it's an upset. But the... um, (laughs) Jeepers, but... uh, The... uh, I said, if they win, I was like, totally positive right there. And you're all like, if they won, I would jump on their bandwagon. But um, that's true, they did win. I was asleep by then. (laughs) uh, um, So this King David, he's like this emerging king, going to be fantastic. But the first king that God ever installed was this guy named Saul. And Saul was everything that you would expect from a king. Uh, He was tall, he was a ruler, he was aggressive, he made up his mind really well. And towards the end he went a little nutty. And uh, Saul ends up actually hunting David, like with his friends trying to kill him. Because Saul made some really bad choices and God let him know that his family line wouldn't carry on. Uh, the, the crown, like Saul thought his son Jonathan and his son Absalom, and the, those kind of, he thought that this would be a good deal. I messed that up, didn't I? Absalom wasn't his son. Um, but he thought, it, so David takes off when he finds this out, and he starts hiding. Saul starts hunting him. David's running through the wilderness in this one story. It's kind of an interesting thing. David is not necessarily um, the most ethical guy on the planet. In the same, this is First uh, Samuel 21. In the same chapter, he thought his life was in danger, so he acted like a madman and, and like uh, put a bunch of drool in his beard and scratched the doorpost so this guy would think he was crazy and not kill him. Um, but he's in this story, and he runs up to this uh, this kind of pre-temple temple that they had. And they had this thing, this ceremony and this tradition kind of in the law that God gave them that they would bake 12 loaves of bread and they would set them out. And that was kind of a, as a part of their sacrificial system and a symbol of something to remind them of their religion. But these 12 loaves of bread weren't just random. They were special and they were only to be eaten by the priests and they were dedicated to the Lord. And only priests were allowed, like sons of Aaron, were allowed to eat this. And David goes in, and he's running away with his friends, and he actually convinces the priest to give him five loaves. Uh, He actually, and it's kind of a weird thing because he lies to the priest in order to give him these five loaves uh, so that him and his men can be fed and go on. And the the question is, is if the priest broke a rule, uh, because he did, he gave five of the twelve loaves that were supposed to be eaten by priests to someone who wasn't a priest. Uh, But the guy who needed them It was kind of like life and death. They had no food, they had nowhere to go, uh, they had no weapons, and they were running away from a crazy king who was trying to kill them. And so the priests are kind of put in this awkward situation where the rules say, this is what we're supposed to do, but if we do the rules, 
then people's lives are actually put in danger. And so we end up in this weird tension, and whenever you have rules and laws, and especially religious rules and laws, what ends up happening is you end up putting yourself in these weird tensions, right? Because I have this rule, or I have this law, and then I have this case that nobody thought of before this, that kind of makes the rules seem like we should break it. Should we bend the rules, or should we adjust the rules for this one case, or does that does that make the rule itself, like does that make a mockery of the rule itself and show how you know, like irrelevant the rules are? In that whole conversation, in like Orthodox Judaism, the Jewish faith, that conversation goes on and on and on for centuries as far as understanding what the laws are. And by Jesus' day, and with the story we're going to read today, Jesus starts interacting with a group that was called the Pharisees. And Pharisees weren't anything special religiously uh, like they, as far as the law goes. Pharisees were a group of people that you could join. And if you joined the Pharisees, that meant you took like the laws and then you put a bunch of extra laws on top of the laws so that you wouldn't break the laws. All right, Like if the law was no running on Wednesdays, they would not even walk on Wednesdays because what if they tripped and ran on the way to keep themselves from falling, right? That would be a huge mistake. So, and this is just a random thing. It's not an actual law, no running on Wednesdays. But they would, they would actually, here's the law, and I'm going to make this extra step so that I don't break the law by some kind of weird accident. That's what it meant to be a Pharisee. So when it came to laws like the 12 loaves of bread, well, they would, instead of just not eating those 12, maybe they would eat no bread at all. Or maybe they wouldn't even go into the room where that bread was. And they would set up these extra rules because they thought it protected them from accidentally breaking a rule. Because breaking a rule for the Pharisees, was it would just destroyed your whole religious outlook. It destroyed all of their power, all of their um, relationship with God. The Pharisees followed rules better than anyone in the Jewish religious system. Now, we throw Jesus into that equation. If you know much about Jesus, he tends to look at the people who are setting up power with wrong, wrong authority for their power, and he likes to dismantle them. And he likes to dismantle them in a way that makes them want to kill Jesus, uh, which is why Jesus ends up on the cross. And Jesus tends to embarrass people who don't realize they're embarrassing themselves by misapplying God's original intent. I'm going to read this. This is chapter 12. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 to 14. And there's two stories up here where Jesus takes a rule that they made and uh, basically dismantles it. And in the end, they're going to try to kill Jesus. So or they're going to start making plans. Let me read this. <coughs> At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on Sabbath and his disciples were hungry. And they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to be done on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. 
And if you had known what this means, and then he quotes scripture, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man, which is the words Jesus used to refer to himself, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there, this is Jesus, went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So Jesus walks into the argument, and instead of setting up like an opposite argument or holding a debate, Jesus walks into this thing and uses the very arguments that they are giving against themselves. In the first of the two stories, you saw there were two stories, Jesus and his disciples are walking through these grain fields. And the Jewish faith has a system whereby you go through your field and anything you miss or anything you drop, you leave it. And this was how they took care of strangers, people who were traveling. This is how they took care of the poor, the orphans, the widows in their own community. They could go out to those grain fields and the edges would always be left. So you wouldn't harvest right to the edge of your field. You'd leave the edge for others to go and get. It was kind of like your, your donation from your family business uh, to the poor in your community, understanding that we're all together, that we're all connected. And so Jesus and his friends are traveling, and as they travel, they're doing what everyone does. And they pick the heads of the grain, and they eat them. But when you pick the heads of the grain, what are you doing? You're harvesting. <laughs> And now this is where it gets fun. This is why Pharisees were so good at making rules. Nobody in this town goes out and harvests by hand, right? Well, nowadays we have huge tractors that you can drive all day, but they would have systems, and they would have a truck, and they would, well, they would have a, a whatever, a horse cart, and they would have, like, stuff to put it on. They would, nobody would go out without even a bag, pick the heads off the grain, and eat it, and say, I'm harvesting. But the Pharisees would say, if you did that by accident, then you're harvesting. And so you're working. And so you're breaking a rule. And this is, this is what people... It's, part of it is great because the Pharisees are watching. People who love rules, like love watching the rules get broken. Because then they get to point that out. Like, people, they love being my friend. I'm not good at rules, Right? I just don't have that personality, so I think this is, this is probably Jesus' finest moment, other than the whole resurrection thing. But, but when Jesus is walking and disobeying rules, I identify with that Jesus. But the rule breakers also love that Jesus, because it, gets the, it gives them a chance to show how fantastic they are at rules. Hey, look, Jesus, I found someone breaking a rule. Isn't that awesome? And then Jesus points out, that David did this. And King David is the greatest of all the kings. That David went in and ate the bread that he wasn't supposed to eat, but because he had need, apparently that was okay. And then he, he, Jesus actually uh, like pushes against them. He actually pushes against them and says, this, in the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, aren't people working? 
And in their day, their Sabbath was Friday evening till Saturday evening, all right? Like we meet on Sunday mornings because that's the morning that Jesus was resurrected. So that's the tradition for people who follow Jesus. The Jewish Orthodox Jews meet on Saturday at their synagogues because that's their holy day, their Sabbath. Now on the Sabbath, and still to this day, if you walk into an Orthodox synagogue, somebody goes in there and turns on the lights, right? Somebody, there's some kind of a rabbi or a, a, a teacher that they have that is working. Like we, we would say there needs to be a day when you're not working, but the day you're not working, somebody else might be working. This is why it's funny when Christians argue about the Sabbath and then go to a restaurant. Because your, your waiter or your waitress and the kitchen staff and the manager are all working so that you as a Christian don't have to. It's a great little moment uh, to kind of point at people, and this is, uh, we don't believe in a legalistic following of the Sabbath, and we'll get into that in just a second, but for these people, following the law was worshiping God. And so on the Sabbath, disobeying the rules would make you unclean before God and not worthy to worship God. But all the priests were working on the Sabbath because everyone was bringing their sacrifices that you have to do on the Sabbath. And God gives them some kind of special allowance. What this means theologically, and we're going to move past just the theology this morning, but theologically this means God has his law and for some reason God provides allowances in his law. And this is the moment that people who follow rules in order to worship God kind of get uncomfortable with God. Because God sets up all these rules and says, follow them or you're toast. And then he says, but if you break the rules over here like this and like this and like this, we're going to make some allowances for that. And it's like, well, God, why do you have those rules then? If some people can just do whatever they want, apparently, like Jesus, then why do we have rules? And Jesus wasn't and this is a misinterpretation, wasn't taking the law and saying it's irrelevant. He wasn't taking the Sabbath commandment and pushing it away. What he was doing was establishing his own authority over the Pharisees' authority. So Jesus isn't against the Pharisees as individuals. He isn't against the laws in the Old Testament. Some people don't like to read the Old Testament because that God seems mean and angry and too many rules. Jesus is against that interpretation of the Old Testament. So that Jesus actually refers to the Sabbath and he refers to himself in this verse 8 for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And there's a bunch of fun things in that if you just want to think about that. There's this Sabbath that was given to us by God and Jesus says I'm Lord with a small L so like he's the captain or the master of the Sabbath. Jesus actually says the Sabbath belongs to me. God created it. It's mine. And the people who heard him say that would hear Jesus say, I can do whatever I want on your little Sabbath because I'm God. Thank you. Drop the mic, yell YOLO, and walk out of the room, right? (laughs) It's just that this weird moment for them that we don't get to catch. Because we would say, yes, Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, we understand the Trinitarian perspective, but these people have a guy walked into their presence and says, this all, all of this, it's mine. 
your little Sabbath, your little law that you're following, it was all pointing to me. And if you don't get that, then you actually don't get the law. And Jesus establishes himself above the Sabbath, which means Jesus establishes himself above the law. And if the law is your only means of interacting with God, then all of a sudden this guy who you know where he grew up, he's from your area, has walked in and said, I'm now the new way. Jesus used the word the new covenant, your new pathway to understanding and knowing and having a relationship with God. And Jesus was walking into the field. He then walks into their synagogue. And the synagogue would be kind of like the local church. If we, if we, under their system, there's like a big centralized church and the synagogue is like the little stuff in, in, in the, every town. And you have the older men in the town, the wise elders who would be the teaching on Sundays and stuff like that. And there's a man in the synagogue with a withered hand apparently. And they go up to Jesus and say, is it lawful uh, to heal on the Sabbath? The same guys who are watching him to break rules ask him if he can heal, meaning they believe in his healing power, which is a wild moment for them because they're trying to catch him, but they're saying, we understand that you can actually physically heal people. Jesus then refers to if you have a sheep who falls in a pit, you're going to pull it out, right? It's just common sense. Like your sheep is going to die, you pull it out. But these Pharisees have set up rules to say there's an exception to the Sabbath if there is something that happens where the danger is life and death. Where the danger is life and death, then you can do something good. You know what happens when you do that? Like first you have the rule of no working. And the argument is, am I working or not? Then you have this rule over here that says, okay, to tell if we're working, if it's life or death, then we can do something. Then you have a sheep fall in a pit and you have to sit there and go, is this life and death or not? You see that? By adding more, they haven't done anything except to make a mockery of their own rules in the first place. When you say, we're going to follow rules in order to represent our religion or interact with our God and we're going to set up more rules so we don't break those rules, you're actually just revealing your heart's desire which is an evil tendency to get around the rules and edge around the rules. That's what, that's what rules do. That's what a law does, is it reveals our sinful nature. And the Bible teaches this. And so instead of arguing whether we could work or not, if your sheep falls into a pit, now you're arguing over, is it deep enough that the sheep is going to, like, if, if, is it going to die down there? Could we wait until tomorrow to pull this thing out? Like, will it survive or not? And meanwhile, this dang sheep is in a pit. Just pull the stupid thing out, right? But they would have to have these arguments because then they would feel guilty. And Jesus talks about how much more value is a human than a sheep. And if you thought your sheep was in danger, you'd pull it out. Now Jesus looks at this man and a withered hand is not life and death. And so Jesus' argument with them isn't against this law that's in the scripture. His argument with them is against this secondary law that they've set up over life and death. Do you see that? So Jesus isn't arguing against the scripture. He's arguing, which would be arguing against himself because he made it, but he's arguing against their interpretation of it. Then Jesus tells the man to stretch out his hand and it's healed, just like the other one. 
So who's having a good, well, a good Sabbath that day? Jesus is having a good time. The man that used to have a withered hand is having a good time. And the people who love the rules are not. You go into this community church setting and you've got this group of people that are wondering what's going to happen. And Jesus actually heals a guy. Like there's a guy who was actually messed up. Like his hand wasn't working for whatever kind of disease he would have had, for whatever age he was. And Jesus fixes that. Now listen, if you were in that man's family, how was your Sabbath? It was fantastic, right? There's everything to celebrate. If somebody is sick or somebody has a withered hand, and then they're not, that's cel- like there's only one response to that, isn't there? There's only celebration response. But the Pharisees, because they love the rules so much, manage, and I think this might be, this is a weird talent, they manage to take something fantastic where everyone is celebrating and turn it into something sad, turn it into something terrible, and make it so that everybody's upset about it. Everybody in the room saw this man stretch out his hand, saw it was healed, and went, this is awesome. Jesus, can you look at this? I have this thing on my toe. Hey, Jesus, I have, I have a cough. Can, you, can I stretch out my hand or something? What do, let's get in line. The right, like, we have showed up to the right synagogue today. And Jesus, over on the side, sees these Pharisees who are looking at what Jesus is doing and says, you could have done this tomorrow. You could have waited. You could have followed more rules because following rules helps people You see, for a rule-following system, this gets incredibly cumbersome, incredibly messy, and it takes things that are so joyous and life-giving and happy, and it turns them sad. If we take rules as being more important than humans then everything starts to fall apart because God is about humans. I want to share, this is one of my favorite, favorite stories about the faith. It's an old parable that people tell. And that this, this master, there was this master that had a servant. And it was a, a master who worshipped, I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it's a, it illustrates a point. This master would, would worship this false god of his land, of his forefathers. And there would be a statue and they would go down there on the designated day and bow to the statue. And the master had a servant who had been loyal to him for a, a very, very long time. And the servant felt compelled to continue to serve his master because of how well he treated him and everything else. And they would go down and they would worship on the appropriate day, but the master's age was such that he couldn't bow the way everyone else did without someone helping him. And that servant's job was to help the master bow down. And as he would do that, the master would put his hand on his shoulder and the servant would actually kneel down and bow with the master. And it comes along that the servant hears about Jesus, hears about salvation, hears about who God is and that God is above Uh, all false statues and all idols that God stands alone and the servant responds to Jesus and Jesus uses the word is born again or or we would use the word like is, is a Christian 
And he comes to his local Christian leader and actually says, on the designated day, when we go down, my master is going to want to worship. And my options are to refuse this man who has been so loyal to me and to just stand there and I don't know if in some kind of a tragic way the master would just fall if I don't say something ahead of time I have to kneel down but in kneeling I'm breaking the laws of scripture that say not to kneel and not to revere false gods it creates this hard gray area we face this all the time maybe not in such a dramatic setting but if you are in school or you work or you have family members who aren't believers you end up in situations where you know there's rules but you're not sure about how to follow those rules because following the rules would seem to ostracize the relationships that you have which are good it would seem to set you against people when you know God is for people. This is why when Jesus' first miracle happens, if you read the Bibles much, Jesus' first miracle, this is, I'm not really comfortable with Jesus doing this, and I talk about this all the time. When I get there, this, me and Jesus are going to have this conversation. His first miracle happens at a wedding where they run out of alcohol and Jesus makes more. Like his first wedding is, here, why don't you keep your buzz, you know, happy wedding. What? Right? Like I am, I am entirely uncomfortable with this miracle that Jesus does. Every part of me disagrees with Jesus in this moment. And I find myself going, well, Jesus, don't you know, the Bible teaches us that drunkenness is sin, and so we don't get drunk and now you're giving people that are half court more. <laughs> right? Like I've read the Bible. I know the rules. Jesus. <laughs> That's the only response I can muster. And, and this is, I mean, maybe you're not comfortable with your pastor having a problem with Jesus, but <laughs> I've, tried, I, I've tried as much as I can to like read some archaeology about it and be like, it wasn't really wine, it was... Fancy grape juice, right? Like, it was near beer, you know, like this. But it doesn't say that. And you can know if I come over to your house and you've got guests over and you're all wasted, I'm not going to the store for you and getting more. Right? Like, that's, this isn't happening. All right? And so I'm entirely uncomfortable with Jesus. And you need to know that when we read this story... It's obvious who the good guys and the bad guys are, right? And when I'm talking, you know who you're siding with. I am not siding with the Pharisees. I am siding with Jesus. But what Jesus does is he actually reveals in our hearts where we are Pharisees. If we allow him to actually be Lord of our life. See, this story isn't about, and this is a fun sermon, right? Rule people suck and we should all hate them, right? Everybody loves that sermon. Afterwards, they're like, James, that was awesome. Thanks, I'm coming back next week. But with the real story, when you try to find yourself in this story, we're Pharisees. We're hypocrites. 
we're the people who are taking everything good that Jesus does and we're messing it up because we're trying to fit it into our system and we're trying to make it work with what we already believe because when Jesus works with what we already believe then we're comfortable then we're happy then we can come back we can operate in our religion sit in our pews and do everything right and fit in and get our prize at the end and it seems like when Jesus is on earth or if you read your Bible eventually Jesus is going to point at that problem that you have and maybe yours is rules on Sundays or the Sabbath maybe yours like me is Jesus making more alcohol but Jesus is going to poke at what you believe and poke and poke and poke and you are the Pharisee and I am the Pharisee we are not the Jesus in this story because when we think we're the Jesus we all of a sudden feel kind of self-righteous don't we like I'm better than rule followers you caught that in the first 20 minutes of the sermon didn't you like I feel like I'm better than people who just follow rules in order to follow Jesus and what I've done is actually set up a new division when Jesus has come to eliminate those divisions I've set up and this is, so, this is something that I struggle with for real that I set up divisions in order to feel good about the way that I want to follow Jesus instead of allowing Jesus to be Lord in this case Jesus says he's Lord of the Sabbath instead of allowing Jesus to actually be Lord of me if Jesus is Lord of me and he makes more alcohol and I don't like it then I'm fine with it because Jesus is Lord of me do you see that? this is way more uncomfortable and I think this is what it actually looks like to be someone's servant and have Jesus actually be in charge because most of the time what I like is when Jesus is in charge of serving me not when I'm serving Jesus who's in charge so Jesus comes into my life see that? my life not I begin to live into a Jesus life and so Jesus begins to serve what I want and my prayers become laundry lists and you know grocery lists of things that Jesus can do for me instead of my prayers being asking Jesus what he wants from me when David walks into that little room with all the bread he's allowed to take some and in a weird way Psalm 51 actually teaches that David had the Holy Spirit in a, in a weird way and the Holy Spirit is the third part of the Trinity and he's a part of the Trinity that doesn't follow rules when the Holy Spirit in Acts uh, at the very beginning Acts chapter 1, chapter 2 it, it, the church kind of begins and when it begins there's about a hundred and some people sitting in a room praying and the Holy Spirit comes down in such a way that it, the, they say it seems like tongues of fire were resting on people and they started speaking in tongues what the Bible calls tongues and some people would say that it would be languages that people know some people would think of some kind of weird heavenly language what it is is the Holy Spirit doing whatever he feels like the people actually walk out 
And after, so this is kind of the first church service empowered by the Holy Spirit. When the people leave and are walking around, everyone goes, it kind of looks like all those people are drunk. Like, could you imagine someone's coming here to walk and everyone leaves church and it looks like we're all corked as we go out there. Everybody's talking different languages, acting stupid, all excited. This is the impression people got after the first church service. Like, can, can you even imagine, can you imagine you're driving home, you know, and across the street church, they're all coming out and their cars are all swerving. You're calling the police, right? <laughs> like, they're all talking different. Like, it's just, it seems like the Holy Spirit is that part of the Trinity. I like to say that he's the power agent of the Trinity. And he does what he, God pleases. In Psalm 115, it says that, that God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. And when Jesus is on this earth, fully empowered by the Holy Spirit, he understands that the laws are there as a shadow, as a sign, as a conduit of pointing to God, not pointing to the ability to follow rules in order to impress God. And Jesus, because he's full of the Holy Spirit, is able to interpret the laws and able to interpret those gray areas in a way that would honor what God wants for people. Because God says he desires mercy, not sacrifice. He desires us to love humans, not follow the rules all the time. Which doesn't mean we just reject the rules. It doesn't mean we reject the law. But it means, as Christians, when the Bible teaches that we have the... If you are a follower of Jesus, this is what the Bible teaches, and this might trip you up, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the full indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life. Meaning, we use like common words, like we explain it just so that you can understand it, because it's mysterious beyond what we can understand. But the Holy Spirit actually like indwells us, or lives in us, and gives you full access to everything that is God. And everything that God has, sorry, like has available to us. Full access. And so when you walk into this gray area at your work, at school, in your family, in your relationships, and you're wondering, what do I do here? You actually have full access to the Holy Spirit, which means full access to the full guidance of God. Because the Christian faith isn't a faith where we've all set up a bunch of rules and we're going to be the group of people that follows them the best. It's actually a group of people wrestling with what it means to follow God in our world the way our world is. And for a few decades, or maybe a couple centuries, the Western world in America was set up where if you just were born in America, you were generally Christian. And our world is transitioning, especially our Western world, is transitioning incredibly rapidly to a place and a culture that we would call post-Christian, where Christianity is no longer the dominant faith in our world. Now we have a pluralistic society with multiple people believing multiple things, And as Christians, what that actually means is we were able to get lazy. And I don't mean Christians as far as just the people in this room. For like a century, we were able to get really lazy because the societal norms fit in with what we did. 
And it still works that way a little bit as far as having your holidays at the right times because of the Christian calendar. But eventually, we can foresee a time when our Christian holidays aren't recognized because there actually are Christian holidays, not secular in our society. Or if the Christians get Christmas off, then shouldn't the Jewish people get Yom Kippur? And shouldn't the New Age people get the solstice off? The whatever, whenever those are. And, and shouldn't all, like, should you get a set of holidays according to the religion that you practice? And then the most popular religion, of course, will be the one with the most holidays. So we need more of those, right? That's a wrong outreach strategy, so you know. But, but if our faith is becoming less of a cultural norm, it actually means for the Christian, you're going to face more, not less, of these gray areas. You're going to have more times when your master, who's been so good to you and you've been so good to him, is going to bow metaphorically to a false idol and if you don't bow as well he'll fall and actually hurt himself and you'll lose that relationship and you're going to walk into these gray areas and not know what to do and we know there's boundaries we know that Jesus didn't get hosed at that wedding (laughs) we understand that there's places where God gives us clear instruction but then there's a lot of places where God kind of gives us these principles and we're supposed to apply them And we're supposed to figure out what it means to live that out. And just simple things like, okay, what would Jesus do here? That becomes incredibly complex. Like, I'm not sure what Jesus would do here. Like, I have these principles, but I have, I think Jesus would do this, and I think Jesus would do this. But I think Jesus would make the right decision, so how do I do that? In that... We can respond to this, like when Jesus walks into the synagogue and starts doing things that are unexpected, we can respond in two ways, right? Like we can go back to our rules, because rules provide security. If you have kids or you've seen kids that grow up, uh, if your kids have friends or whatever, they grow up in in a society or a family structure with very little boundaries, those kids actually love going over to their friend's house that have boundaries, uh, they probably wouldn't say that, but they love or they love coaches on sports teams that are demanding because they know where inbounds and out of bounds is. Like, I understand that. It's fantastic. I know if I'm doing well or not doing well. This is why we're attracted to rules. Unfortunately, life isn't your childhood, and life isn't an easy sports game that has a big white line down the side that lets you know if you're in or out. And sometimes the thing that God wants you to do is going to look like it's out of bounds to all the people who are standing in bounds. And that's incredibly uncomfortable. And you, you might not even, like, the easy part is when other people say, I'm worried about you, I'm praying for you, like that kind of stuff, because you're outside of their boundaries. It gets way harder when it's outside of your own boundaries. Being outside of someone else's boundaries is actually kind of fun. Well, if you're a person like me, it's a riot. Because it makes them all squirm and uncomfortable and it builds this great tension in our relationship, you know. Gives us something to talk about more than what you posted on Facebook. But when you go outside of your own boundaries, all of a sudden you're looking at yourself and being like, I'm not even sure that Jesus would be over here. And then you start reading your scripture and finding out that Jesus hung out 
with like the worst people in his culture. Jesus never sinned, but he hanged out or he hung out with the best sinners their culture could could create. Like these, the people who were best at sinning, that's who Jesus hung out with. And Jesus himself never sins, but he manages to be among these people who are hated by the religion or by the religious elite. And he manages to love those people in that culture to the point where this movement started off of these people to which now if you call yourself a Christian or follow Jesus, you're a part of that. A part of that movement of people who are really good at hanging out with the best sinners that their culture can create. Doesn't that feel out of bounds? Doesn't that feel like beyond what you would want to do? When you look at your work and you're thinking about inviting someone over and you know, well, those people are a little wild. Um, Let's go with these people who are tame. Let's build a relationship with them. When Jesus seems to continually use the people and do the things that are beyond the boundaries that make us uncomfortable... And I think what this story is, when we read this, we can take it and do two things. We can start hitting religious people with it, right? Like someone who has some kind of rule or some kind of religious thing, and we can say, yeah, see that? Take that. Like, I'm on Jesus' side. Or we could actually sit down and let Jesus speak to us and let Jesus show himself as being more then maybe we're comfortable with. Like maybe Jesus wants to get into parts of your life that you've always thought would be best handled by you instead of being handled by Jesus. Maybe Jesus wants to take you to places and allow you to serve him in ways that you're actually terrified of. Like like actually scared. Because I hear people talk about this and this is fun for me as a pastor because it's about you not me right and I hear people say well I really feel like Jesus wants me to do this or Jesus wants me to get baptized but I'm really scared of this or I'm really Jesus wants me to follow this obedience but I'm not going to do it because I'm scared and I'm like oh man you're actually struggling with your faith in God there not just your fear and those are easy because it's you it's not me and then I can put on my little priest hat and I will be just fine But then Jesus does something in my life and Jesus says, hey, this is what I want you to do. And I say, well, Jesus, we've got this good thing going on over here. Let's not screw this up. You know, we've got me and you. We've got this church. We've got, you know, life is good. I don't really want to hang out with the best sinners in town, Jesus. You know, or Jesus, I know you want me to serve you in this way or I know you want me to do this or, you know, Jesus wants to get into parts of my life where I, I kind of think there's a boundary. And what I want, more than anything, is to be a person where Jesus is taking away my boundaries. Does that make sense? I don't necessarily want to go outside of those boundaries, but I really want to go outside of those boundaries. Like everything that I'm scared of, Everything that I'm too shallow for is everywhere that I want Jesus to take me. Because I want to be like 
Jesus. I want to go where he goes. I want to be who he is. I want to, my Christ-likeness not to be a Christ-likeness that I'm comfortable with, but to be one that is a reflection of who Jesus is. I think it's so easy to follow the Jesus I like and keep him up there and I'll follow. And it's so difficult to follow the Jesus who is actually true. And it's so terrifying to actually allow Jesus to be who he is. When uh, my son and I were talking this week, I'm going to close with this story because it's kind of cute. Uh, he started school. He's having a fantastic time. And uh, we listen to the radio a lot in our car. Uh, there's a few people that we turn off. Um, and my kids know who they are because they objectify women or sing about things that we don't like. Uh, so we don't judge them on their musical talent uh, sometimes. But <laughs> we have arguments over that. <laughs> but uh, but we, don't, we listen to regular radio stations a lot. Um, but we uh, um, will change certain artists who we don't agree with their outlook. And my kids understand that we have these conversations. And so this song comes on and LJ's talking about it, how they learned it at school and they were dancing to it or something. Um, but they can take the bad words out the teacher has some kind of magic machine uh, this is my son's words that takes the bad words out right? but some of the kids because they know the bad words sing them anyways right? but they're not really bad you know, they're, uh, they're PG-13 words the teachers aren't at my kid's school aren't putting on gangster rap and dancing to it so you know all right? um, but, um, but so they're and I say to LJ so uh, what, what did you sing? You know, and uh, well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't sing, right? And there's that moment I can see in his eyes, and it's so much fun because he's terrified of what his answer is, because he knows what his dad is going to say. He goes, "Well, what do you think Jesus would do?" And he goes, "Uh, "You know, I don't know." And I told him what I believe. I, I really. They're dancing and learning some dances, a song with a dance. And, uh, and, and I said, I think Jesus would probably be having the best time in the room, don't you? Like, Jesus is probably a terrible dancer, but he's probably dancing the most, you know? And, uh, and, and, I'm, and I'm talking, and, and I go, that's the question. Like, what would Jesus do? And then we try to do that. Well, LJ's answer, because this is beyond his boundary, is, well, Dad, I'm not Jesus. <laughs> like, I don't want to be perfect in everything, Right? <laughs> just happened this, this week. And I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh, how much and how many times do I look at Jesus and say, whoa, I'm not Jesus. Like, that's beyond what I'm comfortable with. I'm not Jesus. Jesus, you be Jesus. I'm just over here. And what Jesus invites us into is a life that is fully him and fully into what he is. And this is what the Bible talks about when it says, you will live life to the fullest. It is terrifying to live life to the fullest. So many people love safe lives. And what Jesus is inviting us into is walking into those situations and telling people to stretch out their hand and it's healed and everybody flipping out about it. And you're living a life that everybody wishes they were living. Let's stand. I want to pray for us in that way. And then we're actually going to worship our God. Jesus, it's, uh, this passage seems easy to apply in an abstract way, and I like ab- applying it in an abstract way. I really like when this is about other people. 
I really, really like everything about my religion when I can make it about other people. And what I want to ask today, Lord, and with everyone here, I want to ask for myself that you would make my relationship with you about changing me. Not about changing the world around me, not about fixing things on my behalf, but that you would actually mend and mold and break into and in a glorious way destroy the life that I'm trying to build and give me the life that is in you. I pray that personally, Lord, and then I want to give that opportunity here in this room. Lord, may you move in us. And this isn't this isn't like a prayer. I actually want to share something. I actually want, if you feel like you're the kind of person that has those boundaries, and everybody's, we're going to bow our heads. You don't have to be embarrassed, but maybe being embarrassed is good for you. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer as well. And if you need to, like, raise your hand and be like, Jesus, that's me, I want to encourage you to do that. If you need to be embarrassed and you want to raise your hand and point it out to everyone around you, that's fine too. But we're going to pray together. And for those of us who identify with the Pharisees, and we hate that we identify with the Pharisees, now's a good time of repentance. So I'm going to ask you to raise your hand as I pray and say, Lord, I feel like I've got boundaries on my life and you're allowed to push here, but you're not allowed to push there. And I want to pray for those of us in this room I want to, who feel this way. We want to pray that you would actually make us like Jesus instead of us making you like us. I don't want a God that is like me. I want a God who transforms me. Lord, change our hearts today because of who you are. Because of your death, your burial, your resurrection, your giving of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit indwelling our lives. We love you, Lord. We love your mercy. Amen.